Scent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 39 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. This week, I am keeping an eye on a possible strike rather close to home here. Um, Visiting Nurse Services is the country's largest home health care services provider. And like many other companies that fill this growing niche that we talked about rather a lot on last week's podcast, they pay the workers who provide home health care services very little. The nurses are organized in New York with the United Federation of Teachers, and they're preparing for this possible strike that would begin on February 1st, which is this weekend. Um, The company wants to eliminate their pensions and health care benefits, which are pretty important things to provide for workers whose job is to make sure their clients are healthy. You don't want your health care provider bringing you the flu. A few things as we consider what this might mean. Um, Peter Rue at Policy Mike wrote a piece about Look, investigating the fact that this supposedly not-for-profit corporation has $177 million and some odd stashed in offshore accounts, while it claims that it's got a debt of $70 million that is necessitating these cuts to the nurse's pay. Second of all, as I've written and we've talked about on this podcast, when care workers strike, they're particularly vulnerable to a certain kind of shaming. How could you strike? The logic goes when you're responsible for lives. Oh, my goodness. Um, This is aimed at nurses, home care workers, even teachers who dare to stand up for their own rights. Yet, without the ability to strike... What other options do these workers have to show the value of their work? Um, We should also note who tends to be the people who are doing this work. It is women, often women of color, often immigrant women. We'll keep you updated, of course, on what's happening with this and other potential strikes. Don't think I've forgotten about you teachers in Portland. And as always, if we have any listeners in this union, in the Portland Teachers Union, in any other union that may or may not be going on strike, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And in other worker organizing news, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers down in Florida has um, reached yet another milestone. They've managed to uh, pull the uh, corporate behemoth that is Walmart into their system of the fair food program. This is a remarkable win for a group that started out as a pretty scrappy independent worker center down in the tomato fields of Florida, organizing many um, largely immigrant migrant workers, many of them undocumented, um, many of them who uh, had never been in unions before. And over the years, they've built up a really great network of organizers and created new systems and models for organizing their communities that touch on not just bread and butter labor issues in the fields, but have also advocated for things like monitoring health and safety in the fields, um, protecting women from sexual assault, um, and addressing some of these really profound issues that affect this hyper-exploited workforce. And one of their strengths is that they've been able to operate up and down the supply chain, and they have uh, drawn several huge food corporations in, food service contracting corporations, and major fast food retailers into this thing called the um, the fair food program, which allows a premium uh, to be paid 
they call it the penny per pound premium to be passed down directly to uh, the tomato pickers in the fields, and it comes out in the form of extra cash in their paycheck. So every time they get a paycheck, they can actually see, um, you know, what uh, corporate America has been passing down to them um, through the consumer dollars that they rake in. So this is a pretty um, interesting way of dealing with the entire supply chain organizing question that really has confounded uh, the food industry and, and food industry workers over the past few years. And what the Walmart victory means is essentially that now, um, you know, along with these specialty grocers like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, one of the world's biggest uh, food grocery retailers is going to be incorporated into the system and that will help raise worker standards across the chain um, so that they'll continue to do their organizing. But, um, you know, Walmart is a big win. And it's interesting, right, because Walmart is getting all sorts of pressure from all sorts of workers that they gave in to this one particular set of workers. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, now for something completely different. On Tuesday, uh, the Pennsylvania State Capitol in Harrisburg started to look a little bit like the Wisconsin State Capitol back in 2011. Um, It was packed with union workers and supporters who are fighting the so-called right-to-work bill that is threatening in the Pennsylvania State Legislature. No vote is scheduled yet on this bill um, in this currently Republican-dominated legislature, but Pennsylvania workers are taking no chances and making sure the legislature knows they're not pleased. Pennsylvania's deeply unpopular conservative governor, Tom Corbett, who is under fire for things like defunding the hell out of public education in Philadelphia, supports such a bill and is up for re-election this year, making this an even more contentious issue. Pennsylvania has a bit of a conservative streak, certainly, but it is a union state. It has one of the highest union densities in the country. And even Republican legislators from Pennsylvania, you might remember a guy named Rick Santorum, are aware that unions have some power there. So Republican legislators in the state have not quite committed to the push for this bill in the way that we saw in other places like Wisconsin. This bill would affect public sector workers preventing union dues and contributions being deducted from their paychecks of state, school district, and local district workers, but private sector unions also showed up for the rally. Um, They know they might be next, of course. William Hamilton of the Teamsters noted that in Wisconsin, the packed capital still came too late to stop Scott Walker's attack on public workers, and so they're really hoping that with action now, Pennsylvania might avoid seeing this bill pass. Um, As we discussed last week, public sector union rights are already in the crosshairs of the Supreme Court. And so it's worth noting that the same forces pushing that court case are also pushing this bill in Pennsylvania and many other places. Mm -hmm. So it's good to see that workers are not letting this slide. Mm -hmm. And uh, just speaking of unions, uh, the... (laughs) Like we do so often on this podcast. Right, right. This is my segue. Um, (laughs) So uh, over the weekend, uh, the board of directors of the New York State United Teachers um, Union representing more than 600,000 members, uh, they actually passed a resolution withdrawing support for the Common Core State Standards. And if you've been following education reform news, you know that this is one of the big planks of Obama's public education agenda. Um, It's sort of the darling of school reform, corporate-style school reform um, rhetoric, Um, the idea that also standards can be raised across the board if we have uniform standards on what to teach, how teachers should teach it, and at what pace students should be learning at every grade level. Sounds pretty good. Um, But when you get into the nitty-gritty of the policy, you see that a lot of um, these tools to impose the Common Core, um, even if they contain pretty good content or, you know, 
sound pedagogical uh, instructional tools, um, they end up being used in a way that um, can be uh, wielded to coerce teachers into doing the state's bidding or into following a kind of teach-the-test curriculum that they do not want. Um, The issue with the Common Core that a lot of these teachers have is not so much with the actual uh, content of what is being taught as it is with the politics of how it is being implemented, namely that the standards are... um, harsh enough so as to be unworkable in their current system. And also it folds into a system of tightening controls on teachers, which undermines the power of teachers' unions, uh, encourages privatization schemes, just charter schools, and also imposes this framework of teaching to the test and drilling, drilling, drilling students until they are basically exhausted. And then they end up forgetting to learn stuff, which is kind of why people go to school, right? So people feel that the Common Core, while perhaps good in principle, is ultimately going to undermine the quality of teaching and learning in the classroom. Um, And it should be noted that a lot of these standards were developed without very much input from actual teachers. They were developed by policy experts, they were provided by wonks, and they were provided by corporate education reformers. So all this to say that perhaps there's nothing wrong with setting standards, but we should all really read between the lines before we let the state rush headfirst into something that will profoundly change the structure of education and how teachers are treated in the classroom. And as a special bonus news pick for this week, we are bringing you a clip of Shama Savant's uh, socialist response to the State of the Union address. She, as you may recall, is the new Seattle City Council member who ran on the socialist ticket. And here's what she has to say about the State of the Union and what it means for working people. President Obama said no one working full time should have to raise a family in poverty. And his solution to have $10.10 at minimum wage. And it is outrageous at the roadblocks the Republican Party has created to any progress on this. But let's be honest, $10.10 over the next three years or $20,000 a year for those who are lucky to have a full-time job is not a ticket out of poverty for working families. Fast food workers, Walmart workers, and others have gone on strike and built powerful protests in cities in every part of the country over the past year for $15 an hour. And this is the only reason that politicians are now talking about raising the minimum wage. Look at the example of the SeaTac $15 an hour initiative, a ballot initiative on 15 that won. Let's make this a year of action, Obama said. In my view, The action we need is by working people and the poor for higher wages and a $15 an hour minimum wage. That was Shama Sawant. We will put the entire speech that she gave in response to the State of the Union up at the Dissent Magazine website. You're listening to Belabored, a Dissent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at dissentmagazine.org. Speaking of the State of the Union, we are going right now to have a little bit deeper discussion of what was and was not in it this week with one of my favorite people. Um, Heather McGee was named the president of Demos, a think tank that works on issues of inequality and social justice this week. 
but her work has been impressing, impressing me and many others for years. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with her on student debt issues, and she's a force to be reckoned with as well when it comes to fighting Wall Street or calling for fair wages for workers. Um, Heather is joining us to break down President Obama's much-vaunted take on inequality in the State of the Union and to tell us a little more about Demos's part in helping bring about a win for workers that was announced in that speech. So first of all, Heather, congratulations on for becoming the new president at Demos and also on Demos's part in making the executive order on wages for contract workers happen. That was sort of the big news the day before the State of the Union. Can you tell us more about the report that Demos published and the work that you guys did with the Workers Organizing Committee to push this? Sure. Um, thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you um, for being such a great journalist on these issues think you're one of the best. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, basically Demos has always been committed to um, trying to restore the pathways that make it possible for people to work or educate their way into the middle class. And so the rise of the low-wage service economy, the low-pay service economy, has been one of the big enemies that we've been working to fight. And we believe that change really happens when the power of people and the power of ideas align. So this is a perfect example where you had what changed between, you know, in 2009, a lot of labor unions, principally SEIU, was really pushing for the president to use his executive authority to, to raise wages and to treat service workers better, um, and it didn't happen. And what happened in the interim that was different was that um, workers began to organize and actually, you know, put a day's pay at risk for these rolling strikes when a day's pay really could mean the difference between uh, being able to pay your light bill or not. So that kind of sacrifice on the part of, of low paid workers was really what I think made the whole country sort of stand up and pay attention, whether it was fast food Walmart workers or the concession and contract workers. Demos played a role by knowing that this was going to happen and wanting to make the sort of political airspace um, using research to dr dramatize exactly how big this problem was. So we issued a report in the spring of last year called Underwriting Bad Jobs, which really looked at how taxpayer money through grants, small business association loans, um, co contracts, direct contracts, concessions, leases, all of that was actually funding over 2 million low-pay jobs. So that, that was actually more than the amount of low-pay jobs from McDonald's or Walmart combined. So we called for an executive order. We were not the first, obviously. The workers themselves were calling for it. Good Jobs Nation. Um, some of our allies in the research community, EPI and NELP, had at some point over the past few years done work on poverty contracting. But we really made a priority for the organization this year and really tried to push it into the media. We got a you know front page Washington Post business page, business page story about it and obviously sort of rang that bell on MSNBC every time virtually that I was on. And I think it was a, a kind of a perfect storm of activists, media attention, and the new political reality for the president. And on a related note, I think one of the things that this whole debate around uh, raising the minimum wage has really underscored is this sort of overhang of profound inequality that's surrounding um, the low-wage 
workforce as well as the entire uh, workforce as a whole. And you actually had an accompanying research report um, that looked at CEO payouts under the same subsidies. Mm -hmm. And that was not um, directly addressed in uh, President Obama's initiative. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the prospects for that and why we also need to look at the salaries at the top in addition to lifting up the floor? So um, that report was called Underwriting Executive Excess. And, you know, on all of our work, we like to really look strategically at what are the big counter arguments that one could use against whatever we are um, researching and making the advocacy case for. So obviously sort of we can't afford it. Business can't afford it. Taxpayers can't afford it um, is one of the first things you get. And so on the Underwriting Executive excess research project, we used a little noticed study by the GAO, which looked just at defense contractors and extrapolated that across all of the contractors and found that over $20 billion a year of taxpayer money is spent to um, reimburse contractors for the pay of their highest paid executives. And that if you lowered that the amount that we reimbursed for any individual top executive at a contractor um, from it was over $900,000 to the salary of the vice president, it would net about $7 billion. And that was certainly enough to pay for more than than the increase that workers were calling for at the bottom end of those same contractors. So we want to just make that case that the money is there. Actually, also really not Um, well noticed in the December budget deal, they did actually, Congress did actually on a bipartisan basis, lower the cap, not fully to the amount that the vice president makes, but to uh, a little over $400,000 per per employee. And so that's great because it actually showed some progress. Um, So that's great. And that was in Congress too. And that was in Congress. Congress did something. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I calculated it. We calculated here at Demos the other day that it's still um, the amount that the cap is at right now, it's a little over Mm $400,000, is still about $234 an hour for an executive versus the 10 10 an hour uh, that we just uh, were celebrating. So they're really going to feel that right in the wallet. Yeah. 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 And and just to be clear, that doesn't mean the contractors aren't paid their original salary. It's just that taxpayers don't reimburse. Right. for that right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, we'll get to a maximum wage someday. <laughs> um, so turning to other things that came up in the State of the Union, um, one of these memes that keeps on going, um, the president talked about training Americans for the skills that today's jobs mm-hmm. need. But one of the things we know about today's economy is that these skills are no longer a guarantee that you will be mm-hmm. paid decently. Mm-hmm. Um, that Neither is a college education that too many people are graduating from college with a debt that takes a huge chunk out of any wages they may get. Um, I know you've done a lot of work at Demos around these issues. Um, Can you talk about about that work and about how a guarantee of a decent wage has to be part of basically education and skills training policy? Yeah, I I have a little bit of a problem with the emphasis, particularly from... Um, Democrats and folks on the left on um, job skills and training as the answer, because it suggests that that's the problem, that of the whole, um, of all the members of the social contract that make up a functioning economy, business leaders, government, and individuals, that it's actually individuals who have not been doing enough. They've not been getting enough education. Obviously, we know that's not true. America is more educated than ever. The low-pay workforce is more educated than ever. Um, 
uh, our friends at the Economic Policy Institute uh, crunched the numbers, more than half of low-pay workers have some college. So it's not that there isn't enough education and training. Um, we really need to be looking at the fundamental degradation of work that has happened. I mean, if you think about the jobs that built the middle class in the post-war period, those weren't high-skilled jobs. They were manufacturing jobs where companies invested in their workers to train them the skills that they need. That's something that's also gone out of fashion and been cut um, with the relentless sort of focus on the short-term next profit, next quarter bottom line by companies is sort of just training the workers for the job specifically that they're about to hire for or they've hired for. So I think that's a big piece of it. It's sort of on a political level, it, it, it's, it's telling the wrong story about, about what the drivers are of inequality and of the lot, lack of middle-wage jobs. Um, and then, of course, you have to look at the other side of, of college affordability. Um, and that's something that Demos has been um, very focused on for a number of years. Again, trying to direct the country towards what are actually the drivers of this problem. Everyone knows um, that college tuition has tripled, that uh, it's become harder and harder for people to go through college without racking up debt and to finish college because of the financial pressures. But what is not a sort of routine part of the story is how much the loss of state funding, of public funds, has created what we call the great cost shift from states onto, from public, from the taxpayers, from the country, onto individual families through interest-bearing debt. And that is something that has been a really radical experiment for our generation, the millennial generation, and something that's frankly going to have to end. We can't, we can't say as a country that we are going to be the innovation nation, that we are going to um, trade away our lower-skilled jobs and be the, have this competitive advantage while at the same time at exactly the same time, make college unaffordable. We have to make college a debt-free prospect for the future of the country. And related sort of to that, um, our friend Mike Consul had a piece at The New Republic this week tracking mentions of the, the phrase full employment in the State mm-hmm. of the Union, which, of course, we didn't hear. But I wanted to ask you, was there something that you were looking for to hear in the State of the Union that you didn't hear? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the federal contracting minimum wage was a great first step for political reasons. It said, I, the president, as sort of the employer in chief, I'm going to be the responsible employer and take the high road way and pay and make sure that the companies that work uh, on behalf of America are high road employers. But it's a very small step. It throws the gauntlet down for Congress to do the same for the rest of the country. But that's not everything. It's not just about the minimum wage. Collective bargaining is something that is a cost-free for the government way to improve job quality, to you know create more middle-class jobs. And that's just something that's been completely left out of the debate among you know mainstream Democrats now, despite how important it is to the thing that they're suddenly waking up to, which is inequality. Right. It's also a right. <laughs> to collectively bar- I mean, you know, just a quick reminder yeah. there. Um, so moving on to what Congress uh, should do and has failed to do, you've done a lot of research on sort of the structural causes of mass unemployment and the barriers that are faced by many jobless workers who are trying to break in and for whatever reason are not able to either get a job or move up in the workforce mm-hmm. in a way that is commensurate with what they deserve in their skill set. Can you talk about the research you've done on discrimination, uh, not just, you know, the usual suspects, you know, race and age, but also things like, um, you know, having a criminal conviction in your background mm-hmm. check or uh, bad credit? Yeah. 
um, all of these sort of insidious things about people's past that kind of hinders their future prospects in a very profound structural way. And you also have um, a, a proposal for this thing called the Equal Employment for All Act, which is actually something that Congress is going to be weighing. So um, mm-hmm. talk about that. Sure. Um, so Dima started looking at the issue of debt uh, well over a decade ago. We were one of the first you know, economic policy organizations to really look at credit card debt and how it had tripled over the course of the 1990s and what were the driving factors, both the deregulation of the credit card industry that made there be uh, a lot more available credit that was a lot more expensive um, because of, you know, hidden rates and hidden fees and, and teaser rates and penalty rates and the underlying economic insecurity that families were facing and the fact that people were just simply borrowing to make ends meet. So we worked for, um, you know, basically until 2009 to try to get uh, new protections on credit cards that have saved over $100 billion um, for working uh, and middle class families primarily um, because of those new protections. So there, there is a story of success there. But if you think about the fallout of a society in which people are living paycheck to paycheck um, to where, you know, health care can m- mean a financial crisis, you know, if you sprain your wrist, the idea that that very routine now um, history of financial troubles, of juggling bills, of just being an American in this low-pay economy would stop someone from being able to get a job or a good job, and in some cases have actually resulted in people being fired from jobs that they already have, that just is so wrong. So we've been working on this issue to try to get states... Uh, and cities to pass laws saying that no employer can discriminate based on credit history. Because we know that the reasons why, the driving reasons why people go into debt and have trouble paying their bills are not because they're irresponsible, but because of job loss, medical history, and divorce. And those are not reasons why someone should not be able to get a job. And the industry that pushes this uh, this sort of uh, all-purpose credit background check for employment is, of course, the people who aggregate this information, the credit bureaus. And they have actually even admitted that there hasn't been any scientific evidence to show a correlation between credit history and job performance. And yet it's still a market and they're still pushing it. So Senator Warren, who's been a champion on uh, the, the debt issues that Demos has been working on since we first met her in 2003, um, picked up this bill and introduced it in the Senate. And there's also a bill in the House that's been around for some time with Representative Steve Cohen. Mm-hmm. And is that the first national initiative to do this? Yes. Because um, I know that there's been a lot of activity in the states, but it's this whole patchwork across mm-hmm. different states. Yeah. So Steve Cohen's bill that was introduced a few years ago. He really should get credit for being a leader on this. And then Senator Warren is one of her first bills. So I do want to go back to the minimum wage for a little bit. Um, There was the AP story this week that, you know, 30 different states are pushing various different minimum wage bills. Obama called on states to act on this because Congress clearly can't get its act together. And of course, we're seeing at the same time as we're seeing the minimum wage stagnate, we're seeing they're making cuts to food stamps. They're not renewing unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, the safety net is disappearing. The wages are too damn low. Um, you talk about the importance of making sure that the minimum wage keeps going up and the worker organizing that's making that happen. I think in a way, um, uh, I remember having this debate with a, another policy advisor a few years ago um, about what was more important. This was before we had the Affordable Care Act. What was more important, a federal minimum wage increase or health care? Yeah. Um, 
And he was arguing, and I found it rather compelling, that the volatility um, of not having health care was something that, you know, if you look at the daily life of someone uh, working paycheck to paycheck or a working class person, um, that that was actually more important and that that, um, creating that kind of safety net to sort of buffer against those kinds of shocks was more important than a marginal increase in the minimum wage. It was also a question about, you know, federal versus state, that states uh, would continue to pass, particularly through referenda, increases in the minimum wage, whereas um, you really had to do health care at a federal level. So I think, fortunately, at this moment, when there are so many pieces of the average person's life that need uh, solutions. We shouldn't be having to debate (laughs) between unemployment insurance when you lose a job and actually being paid a decent wage when you have one. Um, It all needs to be part, though, of a new level of demand for a response that at the public level, at the, you know, at the national level, at the common level, to the things that individually have been keeping people up at night for years. And so that's why I think that the worker organizing is so exciting because we are a country that tends to tell ourselves really individualized stories. You know, I can't make my child care payment. I, you know, my car broke down. Um, You know, I got sick and I wasn't able to pay this bill and a bill collector is calling me and it's my fault, as opposed to looking at the fact that everybody on my block has this problem and that there used to be a time when these kinds of problems wouldn't push you into bankruptcy and that there are public drivers for why this is the case and that there could be common solutions, both government solutions and business policy solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that also has a lot to do with the fact that... um Inequality is deeply affecting so many people across the income spectrum and that Mm -hmm. even people who formerly thought of themselves as, you know, perfectly middle class are now actually um, seeing sort of the devastating fallout from the economic crisis and really needing to climb back up out of that. Um, And I think in terms of this backdrop of inequality that I think um, the State of the Union was referencing and, of course, you know, these grassroots movements um, have been working around, there's been a lot of discussion about social mobility um, Mm -hmm. in the lead up to the State of the Union and... And, um, you know, we have these new studies coming out now about whether or not prospects for mobility have changed and Mm -hmm. the persistence of inequality over time, the persistence of um, socioeconomic and racial inequality Mm -hmm. over time. Um, And, you know, there's there was a new study that said um, social mobility is about the same or that it's about Mm -hmm. it as it was historically, uh, whereas inequality has Mm -hmm. really changed, um, Mm -hmm. that the society has become more unequal. So how do you kind of square those two, and how do these two kind of fit together? Because on the one hand, it seems like, well, um, you know, there's still a churn there of some kind, but the the rungs of the ladder have really Mm -hmm. sort of widened. So um, I was wondering if you could sort of try to fit those two pieces together. (laughs) Sure, sure. I mean, I think you can do it in a not-so-academic way. I mean, the fundamental question of is the American dream a reality? The idea, I think, for most Americans would define the American dream as the idea of being able to have pass on a better life for your children. And we know that the millennial generation is the first generation to have uh, an, an economic sort of material decline in, uh, in income and sort of increase in costs and insecurity. So that's what matters to people, right? Can I make it? And can my kids have the decent life that I work so hard to provide? And, you know, if you ask in public opinion poll, in public opinion polls, you know, whether people think that the country's not going in the right direction, whether people think it's harder for families to get by, whether people think that the gap between the rich and poor is too wide, um, all of those things are trending up. 
And the fact is that when people start to see uh, a huge disconnect between the preoccupations and the level of commitment from their government and what, you know, is troubling them and what their big problems are, you know, we start to have a, a, the ingredients for real, um, real movement. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're seeing. Um, I think the corporate piece in this is so important. People are really connecting. People are starting to see that corporate profits have been at record levels since the recovery, and yet low pay uh, has become a reality for many more people. Um, the money is there, right? People are, are realizing how good we are at making millionaires and billionaires in this country uh, and how good we are at making stock market paper wealth, um, and people are connecting the dots. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the question that we should all be aiming for is not, like, how can we make it possible for a few people to become fabulously wealthy, but how right. can we actually make everybody have a decent life? Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been talking a lot about sort of young people, but on the other end of the scale, there was one sort of thing in the State of the Union that made me raise my eyebrows a little bit. It was the president's proposal for, like, my RA, mm-hmm. which... I think somebody on Twitter, I forget who it was, commented, sounds like a dating service for Irish revolutionaries. <laughs> um, but anyway, as like a new way for Americans to start their own retirement savings. And I, you know, I I don't know. I haven't looked at the policy, if there is any policy written. Um, but, you know, people are talking about Social Security a lot lately. And, and, you know, Obama was sort of, if not pushing, sort of, accepting the idea that, like, chained CPI was a great way to go. Meanwhile, Social Security is still hugely popular. Why a new private... I mean, I'm not asking you to explain Mm -hmm. what the president did, but you know what I mean? Like, this new... This seems really out of touch when Mm -hmm. people are really making proposals to strengthen and increase Social Security right Especially at a time when pensions are eroding everywhere and people are just getting booted into 401ks. Right. So at Demos, we've had a, a project for a number of years to actually, um, you know, internally we think of it as sort of taking down the 401k, right? Yeah. We had a generation over generation um, uh, evolution, forced evolution from defined benefit pensions where I, as a worker, uh, get paid less money in my paycheck every two weeks but know that I'm going to have a certain amount um, because those contributions are pooled collectively as opposed to me selecting funds. Um, And it's a guaranteed amount in retirement. That is what has created so much wealth in this country in terms of the, you know, um, greatest generation and sort of early baby boomers having the retirement that we all know, the sort of Florida retirement. That's That's where we got that idea. That's what enabled it. And then the switch to 401ks, which really shifted risk, again, from companies and collective pooling onto individuals and so many of... Uh, the 401ks are not even um, matched at all by their employer, right? There's no employer contribution to um, to so many uh, 401ks has really created this alternative to a pension that is just not a real alternative. It has failed to do what the American people never said should be a target that moved, which is secure, which is provide a secure retirement on top of on top of Social Security. And so um, between the incredible amount of fees that are drained out of 
um, retirement of uh, 401ks over the lifetime, we calculated that um, the average sort of like really conservative estimate for a household is $155,000 over the course of a lifetime in uh, fees, many of them hidden by traders uh, for the average 401k, right? That's a house in most of the country that you could have uh, bought and left to your family with the amount of uh, fees that are being skimmed off the top uh, by the street. Two, just the fact that, you know, the average balances are simply by far from sufficient um, to actually meeting the extended non-working life that we are going to be facing. It's clear that there needs to be something that is a new stool uh, of the three-legged stool that um, people talk about for retirement, right? Social Security has to be preserved and, in fact, has to be expanded. But remember, the idea of expanding Social Security just made it even into the mouths of progressive Democrats in the, within the past year to 18 months, right? Mm-hmm. So we are, you know, at the, we think at Demos of things, of ideas having a life cycle. And the idea of expanding Social Security to meet the real retirement crisis, not the entitlement crisis, but the real retirement crisis, which is a 401k-driven retirement crisis, uh, is a new one. So... The my R my RA, which the president also had a hard time with, because it's a little it's bit of Myra. a <laughs> um, yeah. it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Um, is I think you know is the president trying to do something that he can do without Congress, right? Yeah. He can't expand Social Security without Congress. Right. The president has been very responsive to the political beltway conventional wisdom at a moment when it was how much should we cut Social Security? He was trying to say not very much. If and when the conversation continues to move to how can we address economic insecurity, and the president has really, I think, had a had a political and mental shift to saying, you know what, I'm going to, you know, be able to, even if Congress won't help, I'm going to s- define what, you know, the left and Democrats should stand for, which is actually addressing economic insecurity. Now suddenly he's trying to. Uh, use the little executive authority he has, the administrative work that he can do um, to actually provide more retirement savings. Mm-hmm. Well, to wrap up, there was a lot of chatter uh, around the State of the Union about how sort of the president's midterm malaise is sinking in and there's mm. fatigue across Washington. But um, what you've been telling us in this interview is that there's a lot of stuff percolating at the grassroots mm-hmm. and a lot of initiatives that are coming up from the ground up that are, you know, making it into uh, the legislative chambers. And I was wondering if you could maybe give a little forecast for what you think we really might see movement on um, on a grassroots level uh, and how that might translate into policy. I think that we're seeing there are a few really in, um, inspiring sort of green shoots. I think we are very close to having the first post-Citizens United uh, campaign finance reform system uh, in, a, in a new state in New York here. Um, there was a fantastic... Uh, multi-group campaign uh, called Fair Elections for New York that started last year that had environmentalists and affordable housing advocates and uh, labor and, you know, you know the net roots, folks who all across the issue landscape of what is affected when we have a big donor campaign money system uh, came together to say, you know what, in New York here, the home of Wall Street, we can actually have um, a system that matches small donors and gives people uh, the ability to, to pay the piper and therefore call yeah. the tune. Um, and the Governor Cuomo included it in his budget, which was the big last sort of demand that the coalition had, and we're pretty optimistic that we can get that this year. That's huge. That is a 
totally constitutionally permissible um, reform that can change policy. We did a report called Fresh Start, the Impact of Public Financing in Connecticut, which looked at how much after Connecticut instituted public financing, lobbyists were not as able to call the shots. Um, Issues like paid sick days, an in-state dream act, a raise in the minimum wage, all passed in the first legislative cycle because you suddenly have the megaphone that yeah. big dollar donors um, being have being taken away, and you had legislators who were running for campaigns actually having to door knock and get to know their constituents for small dollar donations that would have been matched. So that's a huge thing that I think we should pay a lot of attention to. And given how much support there is for campaign finance reform in the wake of Citizens United across the country, I think we may see some um, some surprising states across the country start to adopt this policy. Mm-hmm. That would be exciting. Really, that's important to remember that, you know, that it's not, uh, we're not suffering from a want of good ideas or potential solutions. It's just that the mechanics of government are often just yeah. working against the interests of working people. So Yeah, and I mean, the, our government right here in New York City has gotten a lot of attention this year, and yeah. one of the things that, you know, we... we should talk about more in in that context is the way public financing allowed people like Tish James to be part of the conversation in the first place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you don't have to either be a millionaire or know lots of millionaires to run for office, when you get into office, you don't have to just cater to millionaires. Right. And that was Heather McGee president of Demos, and she was speaking in response to the State of the Union and giving the real state of America's workers. It's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that, where we bring you the stories we wish we had written ourselves. So my pick for this week is a column in The Guardian by Sila Warnk. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but sorry about that. Um, so she talks about this new initiative that Obama has rolled out um, at the, uh, you know, to go along with his State of the Union address. Um, these things called promise zones, which are sort of lifted from the playbook of LBJ's Great Society. There are these initiatives to seed experimental urban policy and planning projects in um, high poverty areas. And it is a quote to promote um, a ladder towards the middle class, um, sort of this classic liberal idea of uh, getting into these communities, uh, funding the right nonprofits, and coming up with uh, policy solutions that will turn around these broken communities. And, um, you know, on the surface, it looks like it could be something quite promising. Um, But in reality, when you read between the lines, you see that some of the ideology that's driving these initiatives, as uh, Warren points out in her column, uh, reflect this sort of social entrepreneurship model that fuses neoliberal economics with this idea of the culture of poverty and this idea of lifting up the poor um, through these sort of nonprofit policy solutions that don't necessarily get at the structural effects of poverty or the structural causes of poverty. Um, And she points out a couple of blind spots in this uh, Promise Zone plan. Um, They seem to be less about helping the poor, she writes, and more about showboating for the press. They are basically targeted towards these um, communities that demonstrate a um, high rate of poverty. But she points out the fact that 
they're basically just seeding money into these select areas as their boutique projects for social experimentation with things like guaranteeing working sewage systems and providing decent <laughs> food for people. I mean, this is like the cutting edge of experimentation in government policy. So that really just shows you, um, you know, not that those things are bad in of themselves, but it really just shows you if you're just picking a couple of communities no, out of the entire country. Those things are great. Everyone right. should have them. Exactly. <laughs> but, but they're only for those special promise zones that Obama chooses to focus on. So um, before we, you know, loud the Obama administration for um, sprinkling his fairy dust on these um, communities that are going to be magically lifted up into the middle class, um, we should really look at some of the really uh, um, kind of disgusting imbalances that are plaguing the economy right now. Uh, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, sewage collection and, and waste treatment as if it's like some special privilege that we can sort of, you know, give to give to poor communities to see if it might help them. Um, whereas, you know, she points out, you know, we're spending over seven hundred billions of dollars on, you know, defense and, um, you know, aid to international security. So, I mean, that, that just shows you, like, how outsized um, the military budget is, for instance, with respect to these other less interesting national priorities, such as feeding people and keeping them housed. So, um, you know, this idea of uh, it's a bit like the charter school movement, right? Um, the, you know, you have these little do-gooders moving into these poor communities, um, lifting up a couple of people as examples of what poor people can do if they just had the right kind of initiative or had the right kind of social supports, yeah. and ignoring the fact that you're basically, you know, skimming off maybe, you know, the brightest bunch of, um, you know, a, a school system that is profoundly lacking in some of the basic resources that every child should be entitled to. So the, the idea isn't to create promise zones. The idea is that we're sort of squandering the promise of a whole generation of people that we failed to invest in on a deep, deep level. So, yeah, that's my ARG. <laughs> that was a particularly arg ARG there, yeah. Michelle. So for me, I don't, I actually am a little surprised that I have not used this person as an ARG. I wish I'd written that before because I've certainly had those thoughts several times about his writing. Um, Dave Zirin, I knew I could count on Dave to have something on the Northwestern University football teams filing for union recognition with the NLRB, and I was not disappointed. Um, Dave's piece is titled, Right Now the NCAA is Like a Dictatorship, Why the Northwestern Football Team Formed a Union. And I share with Dave and my friend Travis Waldron, the sports reporter at Think Progress, an obsession with the situation of college athletes who basically form the farm league for pro football and basketball risking serious injury to just get a shot at playing in the majors and and are paid only in the form of scholarships for classes they're often worked too hard on the field to attend. Um, the Northwestern Wildcats football team at Northwestern in Chicago aims to change all that. They've signed union cards. Um, the report is nearly anon uh, unanimously signed union cards and filed them with the NLRB to join the United Steelworkers Union, also good on the steelworkers for organizing college athletes. Um, the quarterback, Kane Coulter, told reporters, right now the NCAA is like a dictatorship. No one represents us in negotiations. The only way things are going to change is if players have a union. And of course, I want to comment that like ESPN ran the headline, Kane Coulter starts union movement. Dave Zirin knows better than that. Unions are not an individual effort any more than they are the boogeyman that the NCAA lawyers are trying to paint them as, who are pushing unwitting athletes into paying dues because the unions are getting fat off of workers. You know the line, right? You know it. it you know that it's lies. Um, unions are workers coming together. They, by definition, they are not one person. Um, student athletes are a major source of income for almost anyone other than themselves. 
They sort of epitomize today's economy, gambling their health and, and safety on a chance that someone might pay them big bucks somewhere in the future. They deserve a union. As Dave writes, exploitation is not a gift. Seeing your coaches make millions off of your sweat while you're an unpaid billboard for Nike is not a gift. Missing classes because you have to fly to the Great Alaska Shootout is not a gift. Driving 30 straight hours while fighting staph infections is not a gift. No, it's work. It's hard backbreaking work. So cheers for the Wildcats and for Dave Zirin's incisive writing. It just might make me a football fan. You never know. So we want to close this week because I presume that belabored listeners already know that we lost Pete Seeger this week at the age of 94. Um, Sufficient to say that anybody who lives to 94 accomplishes more than most people in their lifetime, but Pete Seeger had a sort of amazing life. Um, I urge everyone, I'll put the link at the Descent website, to read his testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee. It's really... It's really inspiring to see somebody willing to, and not just take, you know, take the Fifth Amendment to avoid incriminating himself. He claimed the First Amendment and was sentenced to jail for it. Um, So we want to take you out today with, instead of our usual music, which is sung by workers from Chicago's Fight for 15 movement, with a Pete Seeger song. Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried gone to heaven St. Peter will be the straw boss then now you know you're underpaid but the boss says you ain't he speeds up the work till you're about to faint you may be down and out but you ain't beaten you can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting talk it over speak your mind decide to do something about it Cause the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streak running down his back. He doesn't have the stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups.